Hello? Hey, John. Can you hear me properly? I do. I hear you just fine. How are you, Dan? I'm good. Happy Thanksgiving. Hey, happy Thanksgiving to you. I, uh, I, you know, you and I decided we were going to record yes. on the holiday. Yeah, why not? And That's right. And, uh, and yet, <laughs> I got up early. There were pies being made. <laughs> uh, and I was sitting, you know, going over all my non-disclosure agreements. And then I realized, <laughs> oh, my goodness, I, it's not just a holiday. I have some work to do. Yeah, get, get to work already. Mm-hmm. I'm sitting on my back patio in my backyard. Oh, uh, good. Outside. So if you hear birds or dogs or lawn equipment or whatever, but it's been pretty quiet. I did my morning live stream from here and it worked well. So I, instead of sitting in my garage, I'm sitting out back. Well, that's good. Uh, you know, the, the danger of course of, um, of podcasting from the backyard is that, uh, maybe at some point you realize, oh, wait a minute. I could just do this every day and then pretty soon your podcast, you've got a little headset <laughs> microphone and you're just walking around podcasting while you do your chores. Right. That would be bad. But, uh, no, you know, I, I'm usually in my little studio and, um, and today being, being a holiday, I'm home. So yeah. I, I brought a nice DR pro mic stand and the sure SM seven B and the little, my little, um, what is it? It's a Scarlet 2i2 and just yeah. pl- plugged them into the Mac and here here I am. Yeah. This feels very John Roderick of me to do something uh-huh. like this. This is not <laughs> my MO. So it's, you know, I figure if you can record from the the bathtub, I could yes. I could record from here. You know, when I when I record from Maui, um there are always like turkeys in the background <laughs> Yeah. And, <laughs> you know, like there's a lot going on, but I've always felt, I mean, there's, there's two schools, right? In podcasting. And a lot of people are about this pristine audio. They want, they want to sound like their disembodied voice just lives in a, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, lives in Valhalla and, um, in the background of my, uh, recordings, there's always noise and static and squeaky chairs. Yeah, but you get away with it because you're John and you get away with that. People, for some reason, that's, they don't, they expect that from you. And I think because I'm always in a studio, they don't expect it. Like, I feel like I need to explain it, you know? Right. Well, you sound great, Dan. Thank uh, you. And I'm glad to be, I'm glad to be on the phone with you here in, uh, in your backyard in beautiful (laughs) Austin, Texas. Hmm. Oh. Oh. For, yeah, for some reason, uh, Alexa feels like she needed to chime in. Well, she needs to be on the show. She's got a role in the show now, I think. Computer, stop! Is that your your keyword, your trigger word? I think I've covered this with you before, but one of the neighbor kids used to come in and yeah, and uh, and talk to her and and get her to play Old Town Road really fast. And eventually, we we had to change the name to to stop him uh, because he was someone else's child and so couldn't be properly disciplined. Uh, but unfortunately, you know, Amazon does not allow you to change the name to whatever you want. So there's only four choices That's, and yeah, right. we cycled through and settled on computer, which is not a great, um, and as soon as I said it, you know, she lit up over there yeah. and I'm waiting for yeah. her to say, 
As soon as I said it is the name of the title track from Taylor Swift's Computer Silence. Um, sorry, I don't I wasn't talking to you. But, you know, I would like to call her, uh, you know, Jehoshaphat or Beelzebub or something so that it didn't come up in conversation that often. But Amazon is a nanny state and doesn't doesn't let you do that because they're afraid that you're going to call it fuckface, right? Well, I, I think at some point they did let you uh, they did let you make changes. Like you could call it anything, and I don't know if if they took that away or what. Wow, Dan, you have a big backyard. Oh, what it's a, huge, dude. It's what huge. a nice Texas style little compound you've got there. Yeah. I forget that you're in Austin. You know, I've spent a lot of time Where there. Where do you think I am? <laughs> well, I mean, I know that you're in Austin, like the sort of general, like, oh, Austin, it's a place on a map. But, you know, I've spent a lot of time in Austin, Texas, and the kind of vibe of the the one-story ranch house with those gnarled trees and the the very temperate indoor-outdoorness of Central Texas. Mm -hmm. I wish I, had a, like, I wish I was in a one story, but yeah. Oh, if you got a two story house, yeah, it's a two story. But you know that kind of that kind of Austin style where uh, it's just like oh, you know your doors are open all the time, and you got kids and dogs and llamas just running in and out of the house. <laughs> well, and right, that's exactly. Yep. It just feels like it's such a different it's such a different uh, environment than it is here in Seattle. And I found people, you know, it's, I I have people that live in Austin that are that I just adore, and uh, and so there's like Austin that is the like I say, kind of the theoretical Austin, the place on the map, the place that has the LBJ Museum, and then there's like my personal Austin. And I haven't been to my personal Austin in years. Hmm. Maybe um, it doesn't exist anymore. That's, that's the, the scary thing. thing. I, feel like, I feel like maybe it doesn't. I mean, I knew a bunch of people that worked at Dell. Uh, I would go down there and stay for weeks at a time. Um, and I haven't been in <sighs> 10 years. And so, I mean, all those people are presumably still there. All that Austin is still there. It's just that now they're all, now they're all grown up and their kids are grown up. Right. And, and it's not that I ever stopped liking them. I never had a falling out with them. I just stopped touring. And when I toured, I was in Austin six times a year. And mm -hmm. now I'm in Austin zero times a year. Right. I have all these friends in Europe. It's the same. I used to see them all the time. Twice I mean, a is year. that just because of the way the world has changed? Is it more preference or what's the what's No, no, the it's just touring. Just touring. Like I had a Yeah, I had a job where I traveled. Uh in a in a certain kind of way, right? I mean, my job I still travel, but now I have this kind of I go to I go to locations, big and big cities primarily. Um and so I fly to New York, I fly to San Francisco, I fly to LA, but I don't go to, I don't go to Austin, right? But I used to go to Austin because I was on a, I was on a national tour three times a year and you always went through Austin and then went to South by Southwest. Right, so we right. also went down to Austin for that and, 
Um, and then I was in, you know, my booking agent was in Belgium. So every European tour started and ended in Belgium. And that was a central location. And I had friends in, in every one of those countries. And they, a lot of them were people that came to every long winter show in their region. Um, so we'd see this, you know, we'd see, we'd see them at every show in the UK or every show in Germany. And I, you know, a lot of times when you have friends from the old days and then you, you don't see them anymore, it's like, well, we grew apart or they got married or, uh, I changed jobs or, you know, they're usually, usually you drift apart from people. And in, in the case of like the friends and the universe I lived in when I was a, a touring musician, which was 10 years of my life that I really settled into the groove. Like, you know, I would leave, I would leave St. Louis or, or, uh, Atlanta and say to my friends, there, like, well, see you soon. Like I'll see you next time because that had been a reliable truth for a decade. Like I see you every, I see you as often as I see my friends in Seattle pretty much. <laughs> right. Right. And then, and this all happened, you know, before you and I knew one another. So, it, so it's different. I mean, it was true of Merlin. Yeah. I saw Merlin multiple times a year cause I was in San Francisco all the time. And that was where I stayed. I stayed at Merlin's a, a true of friends all over. And then I just, the thing that's, that's crazy about touring is that especially in America, well, and even more in Europe in, in a way it's very album dependent. If you show up in Germany and you're like, yeah, we don't have a new album. We're just doing a tour. People won't come. It doesn't, they're just like, well, you know, when's the new record? And that's true here too. No, no booking agent wants to send a band like the long winters out where there's nothing to promote and no reason to get the band's name in the newspaper because no, they presume no one will come. And our last big national tour was over 10 years ago. And I stopped going to South by Southwest and all of a sudden, like the whole, whole worlds of my life and friendship and just the geography of my, my personal geography, it all stopped abruptly. And yet I had not grown apart from all those people. I had not had a falling out with it. I just, the last time I was in Austin, I thought I would be there five months later mm -hmm. and then I never went back. Right. That was it. <laughs> and it's just like, <laughs> uh, so I have a phantom limb, limb syndrome a little bit because it, in Europe I'd gotten to the point that when we flew over there, like I really looked forward kind of to every night of the tour, partly because I knew I was going to see people I considered good friends. Right. And we were going to have some laughs and, you know, uh, and catch up and, and, uh, I think email just never was a part of a lot of those relationships cause they were, we may have talked about this before, but a lot of my rock 
culture and relationships and friends and that universe didn't, it wasn't about the internet. Those relationships didn't have an internet component. Some of right, them did. Right, right, right. No, and I mean, that's really interesting because there are, there are like, especially for people of our generation, I think that there's like in-person relationships and then there's like internet relationships. And sometimes there's a crossover, but a lot of the time there just isn't, you know, like, like the idea of like, like I would never think of emailing you. I would think that we would see each other in person. We might talk on the phone, but like emailing you wouldn't feel natural the way that some of my other friends, I might, a phone call might seem weird. You know what I mean? Like it, and I don't know if that's personalities. I don't know if it's how we started, you know, but that what you're saying really does make sense because without the ability to travel and like you're saying, you're not touring or anything, there's something that that's like, there's a disconnect there. Like, are you just like going to become like a pen pal with someone, you know, <laughs> like that you used to hang out with and like, go play on a stage with and now you're like pen pals. I don't know. It seems weird. Yeah. Especially, I mean, our younger fans congregated on live journal. Right. And on the long winters website, a uh, message board. And I remember people showing up to shows and I would talk to them after the show and they would say, oh, you know, we're friends from live journal and this is the first time we've ever met. <laughs> and I thought like, wow, how cool. Like the internet is so cool. Uh, tell me more about it. And it's like, well, I live in Chicago and they live in Milwaukee and we both came to the Minneapolis show and it's like, wow, the internet's bringing people together. How awesome. And now, um, like, primarily I interact with people that I know from the internet and that a lot of them I've never met and in some ways maybe never will or, or it's, it's, it's un unimportant to our relationship, whether or not we ever meet. Um, and a lot of, you know, a lot of people I've met once or twice, um, I've met you once. No, more than once, a couple times, a few times. But we, we ate, we ate lunch at the thing that one time and, your daughter was, was all, there, but it was all the same weekend. No, there was a second, the second time we met too. Second, when was the second time? We the met? second trip. What was the second trip? That next, um, the other time where we, we, we were with Merlin and we went in and ate ramen. In Portland or in San Francisco? I don't know. Well, I don't know. It must've been San Francisco because Merlin doesn't travel anywhere anymore. You and Merlin and I have never been in the same room. Yes, we ate, we did. And, and we went You're to- You're misremembering. No, Hattie was there and she, we just were talking about this and we went and ate ramen and Hattie and I couldn't eat anything because neither of us eat gluten. And you were like, super like, oh, well, should we go somewhere else? We're like, no, who cares? Eat, eat up. And it was you and me and Merlin and Hattie were there, all of us. Wow. Well, all right. I don't remember anything else about it. I don't know where we were. I don't know what was happening. I don't know what state it was in. I don't know what year it happened, but I'm, I know this happened. Picks or it didn't happen. Yeah. Look, she probably has some, but, but that's what, what's interesting to me is that a lot of my internet friends have been with me through several permutations, right? I mean, a, lo a lot of, when I started Roderick on the line, 
with Merlin or when I got onto Twitter, I was very, I didn't have much of a presence on the internet. I kind of, I remember signing into Twitter and feeling like, okay, then I guess I'm entering the internet because I had never been on live journal and I, I went to the long winters message board, but it felt like, you know, it felt like peering out the window of my house a little bit. But now I've had friends on the internet who have followed me from thing to thing who, you know, I recognize them as, as, as faithful friends. But a lot of my rock people who were very close and who were with me for many years, they, ne- they didn't become – either they didn't become internet people or when they got on the internet, it didn't um, – it wasn't linked to the internet I was living in. We would like to say thank you very much to SaneBox because you know what? You're probably like me and you get too much email. SaneBox is for you. It moves unimportant emails out of the inbox into a separate folder and summarizes them in a digest. This way you only have important emails in your inbox and you can process everything else when it's convenient for you. Sandbox works on top of your existing setup. You don't have to change your habits by creating like a burner account or downloading a new app. Sandbox just makes your existing one awesome. And Sandbox works everywhere on any email provider, any client, any device. But how does Sandbox know what's important? It analyzes your past behavior, so which emails you've opened, which you responded to, how quickly and how often. And it determines the importance of incoming emails for you. But they care about your privacy. It's never looking at the content of your email, only at the headers which are basically public anyway. It also has really cool features like one click on subscribe. It lets you snooze non-urgent emails. You can move attachments uh, to the cloud. It's got follow-up reminders. And, and there are these really great features like that, like the same black hole. It lets you literally file stuff you never want to see in a black hole and it'll never come back from it. Sane reminders automatically tells you when you need to write a follow-up email. It's so useful. It's so helpful. And this is the tool that we've all needed for email. Um, this link, SaneBox, S-A-N-E-B-O-X, SaneBox.com slash roadwork, that's where you're going to go to get a $25 credit applied to your account automatically just by visiting that URL, SaneBox.com slash roadwork. That's on top of their already existing 14-day free trial. So there's no coupon. Just go to SaneBox.com slash roadwork and check it out. Thanks very much to SaneBox for making this show possible. And so... You know, um, and I think a lot of it is that people my age that were into rock and roll weren't natural internet people. They weren't, they, they didn't make the transition to online. And, um, and so they, you know, they might not even, they might be completely unaware that I even podcast. Right. Do you even podcast? Right. Uh, and but you know, they're, and they are, because they're rock and roll people, they're very unlikely to embrace things like Facebook just because they have, you know, they, they were very unlikely to embrace new wave, let alone, let alone like, I guess I'm on Facebook now. Right. I mean, I had a friend of mine named boss who lives in Amsterdam, who had a collection of like 4,000 different kinds of salt from around the world. (laughs) And, you know, boss used to make his own glasses like boss is a nut. And seeing him was a highlight. I mean, saw him every, every handful of months and it was always a highlight. He and I would always go off on some, we'd, you know, wander off and have some, uh, 
some side sidebar adventure. Haven't seen Boss in a decade. Haven't talked to him. Hmm. I've never never emailed him. He's not, as far as I know, he's not on the internet. Don't know where he is. I assume that right now he's sitting on top of a pile of salt making his own glasses. But <laughs> that was ten years ago. Boss could be. I mean, the 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 way that his mind works mm-hmm. and the kind of person he is, he could be a piano repairman. He could be. <laughs> You know, he could have gone to sea and I wouldn't even know how to get in touch with him. Mm-hmm. But he was like, he was a person that if I go look through my photos, you know, there are a bunch of pictures of, of the two of us together. And, and the thing is he wasn't just, he lived in Amsterdam, but he would come to things we did in Belgium. He was part of my social circle there. And I forget it sometimes because I'm so immersed now in the internet and in the, and, and in podcasting and in my current life that I forget that, you know, like Lisbeth, who was a devoted long winters fan and ended up creating the long winters archive and library, which she still maintains. Uh, If you go online, she's got all of our shows archived like a tremendous amount of detail kind of like Yoken does now for the, for the podcasting world. Lisbeth um, used to do for the, for my rock universe. And I used to see Lisbeth all the time. And again, haven't seen her in a decade. I can, you know, I can, I can picture every, every detail, but, so I don't know. I don't. I don't know. I guess. I, I guess it's Thanksgiving, and I'm feeling a little bit Thanksgivingy. Mm-hmm. I want to just come sit in your. It, I, I should say to the listeners, Dan sent me a picture of himself sitting in his backyard with his, um, with his, his microphone and his exciting new hairline. And <laughs> the hairline it, is no different than ever. And it, it made me feel all sentimental about <laughs> about the fact that I've never sat in your backyard in Austin with some Al Pastor and some barbecue and that would be amazing. To you the, should do it. Listen to the insects buzz around. You mm-hmm. know, my booking agent lives in Austin. My booking agent Matt Hickey, who booked along winners for since two thousand one. Uh, I need to go. Austin. I need to go take my hairline over there and tell him that you need to come to town. Yeah. He's got a little girl that's, you know, the same old? age as my little girl, same age as your little girl. All the three of us could have a little uh, play date. And yet haven't been to Austin in a decade. Hmm. That just doesn't seem right. Does it? I wonder if you'd even recognize it here. There's so much different just in the almost 10 years that I've been here. It seems different. And I've been watching well, it, you know, like you're, when you, when you watch something happen it it's, you don't notice the changes as much as if you don't see those little tiny changes every day. I think you would look around and say this, I don't even know where I am anymore. Well, that was true. The first time I went to Austin as a rock musician was 98 or 99. And by 2008, I was like, this city has completely transformed like a place I'd I've never seen a city transform so dramatically in such a short amount of time. But Austin of of 1998 and Austin of 2008 felt like 
such different places. Austin in 1998, most of downtown still felt like it was one story tall. There just weren't that many tall buildings downtown. Yeah, it's definitely not like that anymore. It was just like a little, you know, herpaderp town. It mm. was sprawly. It always was a little sprawly, but sprawly and bad traffic. But God, now it's a metropolis. Yeah. Or it's, it's trying traffic. to be, it's on it. It's trying hard <laughs> to get there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What, what do you have? Uh, do you, would you normally under normal conditions, what would your Thanksgiving look like? Would it be a bunch of people? We would, would usually it- have, I mean, it kind of depends. It's either like my mom or the other side, the, um, grandparents on that side usually one set of those rarely if ever both and then my brother-in-law and then the four of us here so usually it's a minimum five sometimes six or seven people but that's the most we never have had like 20 people and a big thing i've i don't even know if i have that many relatives who if i took them (laughs) if i if i took them all i don't think it would be that big (laughs) <laughs> so this isn't a big difference. Like this is like minus one or two people. It's not a big difference. Right. What about you? You know, the, the style of family, like, like the, like the Thanksgiving dinner you see at the end of raising Arizona. Mm. Um, <laughs> it just was never our family. And partly it was that, you know, my dad had a first family who were, I mean, my oldest brother was 18 years older than I was. Right. Um, and all of his, all of my dad's relatives, I mean, my dad's first family would have been the, they would have been the age relative to all their uncles, aunts, and cousins where it would have been a, Uh, raising Arizona family because all of their first cousins were all kind of, you know, within 10 years in age and all their uncles and aunts and their grandparents and whether or not they actually ever sat down to a Thanksgiving dinner like that. I think they did. And the reports were that, you know, one uncle got drunk and started talking about, uh, about the hun and somebody else, you know, told him to sit down and then somebody threw the creamed onions and everybody, you know, and it turned into a, a, a riot. I think that happened a lot and it would have been the experience of my family in the, in the early sixties, right? In the early sixties, my dad would have been in his forties. His kids were all in their, um, in, you know, junior high, their cousins were ranged between 15 and five, all the, everybody was still alive, you know, and they, and people wore suits to dinner and white gloves on airplanes. When I was born, my dad was 49, 48. And when I was growing up, my siblings were all grown. My cousins were all grown. My grandparents were dead and my uncles and aunts were in 
late middle age and there just wasn't any none of those people had any desire to gather with one another really we we had we had some big family events where we would all get together for to commemorate something and stand around the piano and everybody would sing their you know the the my family in the 60s and 50s like everybody in the family had their own song and they would stand around the piano and each person would get their moment where they would sing their song and the family would smoke their pipes or whatever and and uh like the like music always played a role my grandmother would sit at the piano and then later my brother sat at the piano and they were both the kind of musicians that you could just call out a song and they would play it you know if you just said like rhapsody in blue or whatever though <laughs> off they'd go um so you know i have i have a, in a way a kind of racial memory of that sort of thanksgiving because i have pictures of all of my family members at those events, including my mom when she was young and was my dad's new wife and was, you know, kind of standing in the background in her, uh, in her late twenties at these events where everybody else and, you know, everybody else was, a was in politics or something. And, she, you know, and I've heard her stories a million times of being at those things and, and, um, her assessment of every smug asshole that was at that was at that event, but it wasn't true for us. We, we were much more a nuclear family and, um, there were some Thanksgivings spent with the larger family. When I first moved to Seattle and was kind of just like a homeless, rootless, mm-hmm. my uncle Junius started inviting me to his Thanksgiving and I went for many years, uh, par- partly out of a feeling of family obligation, partly out of a feeling, uh, you know, that Ju- Junius was being generous and I was grateful to have a place to go. Uh, Junius's Thanksgivings are the type where it, Uncle Junius stands up at the head of the table and gives a not brief speech on the meaning of Thanksgiving that incorporates historical sources and ultimately has a, has a theme, a larger Mm -hmm. theme. Right. And then each guest at his table goes around, you know, each guest has, has a, it comes to them to, to give a speech of gratitude or Mm -hmm. in reference to Junius's speech. Uh, and he invites a lot of rock on tours, but also his relatives and, you know, step kids and stuff, people that don't want to give a speech and would sit and squirm. And so I think he liked me there because I, you know, of course I'd get up and give a five minute speech about Thanksgiving. Are you kidding me? I'd do it right now. You do it now. You want to do it. You're waiting for someone to ask you. Yeah. Hey, stand up. And you know, what does Thanksgiving mean to you? But, uh, but yeah, the traditional family thing I never had. And I didn't, I didn't miss it except that I'm a sentimental. Right. I think my sister actually missed it. Like, like she has phantom limb syndrome because 
That's she the second really time thrive. that you've said phantom limb syndrome in this. Is this something you've been like maybe researching or reading about? It's the second time I've said it in today's show. Yeah. Oh, interesting. No, it's just a lot of that type of thing. I, I just incorporated into my thinking as a metaphor for. It's a good metaphor. You know, there are all kinds of things like that where it's like, you know, there's, there's actual phantom limb syndrome, but there's the power of it as a metaphor, um, is did you know, did you know that one, so strong. one of the treatments for phantom limb syndrome is to have someone sit in front of a mirror so that it flips the image in such a way. It's, I guess it's a special mirror so that yeah. it makes it seem like the limb that's missing is in its proper place. Right. So if, if the person has, let's say, lost their left arm, for example, it would show in their reflection that the left arm is back. And apparently just spending time looking at, at that mirror reflection in the right way, the right kind of mirror, it, it gives your mind essentially the feeling of it being there and it can help with the problems of phantom limb syndrome, which I guess there can be pain and other things like that. Like it can... It can help with that, apparently. Oh, isn't that uh, that's that's cool? And isn't that cool? Yeah, I was trying to explain acupuncture to my daughter mm-hmm. uh, last night, and and I was trying to demonstrate acupressure, mm. <laughs> and you know, I grabbed her hand and was you know kind of seeking out little acupressure points. And she, she got this amazed look and she said, I feel that in my back. I feel that in my lower back. Mm. And I said, you know, I have no idea what I'm doing, but I do know, you know, I've, I've, people have practiced to those things. Was that you, Dan? Did you make that sound? No. And what did you hear? It was a Skype sound. Beep. beep. Yeah. I wish I had, but no. I was going to say, if you have the power to send a sound like that, <laughs> yeah, I wish I had that power. <laughs> no. But, you know, trying to explain to her, um, e- even just the first inkling of the idea that, like, you can, I mean, there are whole schools of thought that you could poke a, poke a needle into this place between your fingers and it would help your kidney function. It, it's it's, it's mind-boggling, right? It's crazy. Of course, yeah. it, you would say, of course I can't work. And then, well, the whole human body is connected. And have you done a lot of acupuncture? I have had acupuncture one time. I had a, an incredible experience with it. And then, like so many things in life, I never once went back or even really got close to having it again. And, and I... It's an example of like, I think about it sometimes like you, you, you had a, so there was a, a gal who lived across the street from our practice space and she was about my age. This is when we were all in our twenties and we had built this practice space in an old garage right across from Cal Anderson park in Seattle in an area now that, you know, none of this would have been possible, but in the nineties, it was just some abandoned garage and we went and it was behind, um, it was behind the new city theater, which became the Richard Hugo house. But when it was still the new city theater, 
I knew the, the director of the theater, John Kazanjan and through a connection with him and, and the fact that, you know, new city was where a lot of my friends put on their plays and, and where we would go to see like alternative theater and, and our, and just, it was part of our community, right? Kazanjan was a, and is a kind of brilliant theater maker. And it was the era where a lot of people were putting on one person shows, uh, or, or writing and producing full, fully fledged plays, but on a, in a very black box kind of setting, you know, um, it was just the style of theater at the time. And it was a big part of my life as a young person. But we went to Kazanjan and said, can we use the garage that's in the back of the property? And it was, you know, it just had a garage door and a wet floor. And he was like, yeah, sure. For a <laughs> for a hundred bucks a month. And we went in there and completely transformed it into a studio, built an internal wall, took the garage door out and, and, and built a cinder block wall in the outside uh, soundproof did as best we could electrified it and it became a band practice space that, you know, a whole, um, a whole generation of bands ended up going through there Voyager one and Kinski and all these other bands took over for it after I left. But when we built it, my band, the Bun family players practiced there. And then the Western state hurricanes, that was the, the practice space of the hurricanes. And I only lived a block away. So we could come and go at all hours of the day and night and play music there. And it was like a clubhouse. And, but across the street, there was this, like one of those old apartment buildings that really just had four apartments in it. It looked like a house, but it was built as an apartment. And in the top floor corner facing the building was a young woman who was going to Bastyr College mm -hmm. studying acupuncture and alternative medicine. And in the mid nineties, you know, Bastyr had already established itself as a kind of preeminent, um, American alternative medicine college. And she was studying, you know, proper Chinese acupuncture there, but we had a lot of conflict with her. She would come over and say that the, that the base waves were interfering with her chakras, you know, that it was, that it was a bummer, the sound we were making. And there was a, there was a period where our relationship was like, ah, oh, that girl across the street mm. is always coming over and yelling about the, <laughs> about the music. And then some conversion happened where we got to know each other and we involved her in our culture a little bit. And she became a fan and a friend and she started coming to our shows and then was coming to all of our shows. And she became like a, like a, like a member of our community and we of hers. And so at one point she said, you know, come over, I'll give you a, um, you know, I'm still an acupuncturist in training, but I'm in my third year. Um, I'll come and give you acupuncture. And I used to have shoulder problems and neck problems. And I went in and lay down and she acupunctured me. And I, I, I had a really profound experience. 
Because I was, as in all things, Dan, I was very dubious. Yeah. But did this inspire you to change, um, to change how you were making the, the bass vibrations? What what we did, we came to a we came to an agreement that we would only play with, you know, full bass during certain hours. You know, we 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 made an arrangement with her that we wouldn't we wouldn't do the things that were that were incredibly disruptive mm-hmm. to her because we all understood how bass is. I mean, somebody can be. If, if there's enough power behind a bass wave, it can screw you up from a mile away, right? You can hear, the, you can hear a bass going you cannot, and just be like, You cannot Oof. stop the sound of bass traveling. You can, you can do things to mitigate or attenuate a higher pitch sound, but bass, no amount of sound dampening can really fight that. That's going to that's gonna cross walls and cross <laughs> barriers and everything. Like, that's the... Yeah. That's in, a lot. Yeah. And, and, you know, and we're rockers. So we wanted our, we wanted loud bass. We were, um, Mm -hmm. we were going for that and, you know, and we were in a, we were in a neighborhood. She wasn't wrong that we were right across the street from where she lived and she's just sitting there, um, trying to do her homework and all she hears is, uh, so we, we, you know, we were sympathetic to her, but, but in, in, I mean, when you're, when you're playing rock and roll, you're kind of just like, well, I mean, I get it, but we also have to play a rock and roll, man. <laughs> we would like to say thanks very much to Headspace. Life can be stressful even under normal circumstances and you need stress relief that goes beyond quick fixes. That is Headspace. It's your daily dose of mindfulness in the form of guided meditations in an easy-to-use app. Headspace is the one of the only meditation apps advancing the field of mindfulness and meditation through clinically validated research. So whatever the situation, Headspace really can help you feel better. If you're overwhelmed, Headspace has a three-minute SOS meditation for you. You need help falling asleep? Headspace has wind-down sessions their members swear by. And for parents, Headspace even has morning meditations you could do with your kids, and they're really fun. Headspace's approach to mindfulness can reduce stress, improve sleep, boost focus, and increase your overall sense of well-being. I am using Headspace, as many of you guys know. I've been doing mindfulness meditation for many, many, many years, uh, but I always did it in a, a very sort of traditional Buddhist way. And what Headspace does is it gives you these little meditations that you can do anywhere, anytime, whenever you need to. And sometimes, you, even if you're an experienced meditator, you still want guided meditation. And they have really, really great guided meditations that I just love. They're backed by over 25 published studies, uh, 600,000 five-star reviews, over 60 million downloads. You get the idea. They know what they're doing. They make it easy for you to build a life-changing meditation practice with mindfulness that works for you on your schedule anytime, anywhere. You deserve to feel happier. And Headspace is meditation made simple. So just go to headspace.com slash roadwork. That's headspace.com slash roadwork for a free one month trial with access to their entire full library of meditations for every and any situation. This is the best deal offered right now. You've got it right here. Headspace.com slash roadwork. And that's, that's the choice. That's when you figure out whether or not you're a dick. 
you know, when, when the thing that you're doing that you think is the most important thing in the world comes up against someone else just trying to live their life, whether or not you are sympathetic to them, whether or not you ultimately are willing to change your process to accommodate the fact that not everybody in the world thinks that your that your baseline right now is is the is the best thing that ever happened, and that was that's a learning process for a lot of musicians and artists because you struggle so hard to I mean in our case like I struggled so hard to find a practice space yeah and it feels like such a victory when you finally get a place that's yours that you can turn up and play mm-hmm. and. And to have gone to all that trouble to have built a, a whole building for this express purpose. And then one neighbor has a problem. It's really tempting to say like, uh, you know, I can deal with your pain. <laughs> I can, ha- <laughs> I can handle you, uh, hurting because this has been such a trial for me and it's such a revelation what I, what we've accomplished but to to figure out like no in fact you should really try not to be the bummer in anyone else's life yeah and it's and this this comes up all the time with, with people who have a dog mm-hmm. whose dog is out barking in the backyard yeah. and they're and whatever, they find a way to justify it to themselves. Like, well, that's just what dogs do or whatever Mm -hmm. it is that they come to in their minds that allow them to hurt other people and justify it as convenient for themselves or necessary or natural or something. And we tried all that in our own minds. Like, well, the bass is just, it's just, you know, it's just rock music. Like, well, it's just like a car driving by on the street, all that stuff. And then you, you just finally arrive at a thing like, we're really hurting this person. Right. And they didn't, they're innocent. What can we do? And so we did. We, we worked with her. And the thing we can never know is, was there a neighbor that was bothered by the bass who never said anything. right who just dealt with it and just lived with it and said maybe they'll eventually they'll go away yeah and 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 maybe when we changed when we played and accommodated the other neighbor we may have perfectly overlapped the sleep schedule of some <laughs> person who we never talked to who now right. couldn't sleep and and uh and then caused an industrial accident that killed a dozen people but but you know with but, something with something like acupuncture though um, I mean, I, you only did it once. I, I went to an acupuncturist who I saw for a long time. I, I went really? to her for a number of years, weekly or biweekly for really? a variety of different things and had remarkable improvements with different things from her. And like the whole experience as it's, I mean, she was like legit. She was an MD from China and a pan, I, I didn't know this, but what she explained to me is that here we think of acupuncture as kind of fringe medicine in a way. Like it's, well, it's kind of weird. You couldn't find answers in traditional medicine. So you had to go to an acupuncturist. And I guess it works for you. 
but over there, it's not thought of that way. It's thought of as a legitimate, perfectly legitimate, normal kind of medicine. And she was saying that in, in hospitals, and she spent many years working in a, a Chinese hospital, she was explaining that, that they, that acupuncture along with Western medicine are both fully integrated there. So depending on what your problem is, you'll receive treatment from both depending on what it is. So like if you, if let's just say you broke your arm, you know, you're going to come in and they're going to, they're going to put you in a cast or whatever they would do, but then they might use acupuncture to treat your rehabilitation part, or they might use it to treat your pain or things like that. So they're just, it's fully mixed together. And uh, she said, here, you know, it's not like that. And she had worked really hard when I first went to her. She was in her first location. And I, I kid you not, it was like the scene in Gremlins when the dad wants to buy the Mogwai. And there's like, like you full on, there's like incense burning and all kinds of bizarre smells and strange things on the shelves. And she was talking to me. She's like, you know, this turns Americans off. She's like, they don't, they come in here and they don't, it doesn't feel legit to them. It feels like voodoo or witch doctory or something. And she got a new office and she set it up to look just like a, any kind of like doctor's office, walk-in clinic type type thing, you know, white walls, regular boring chairs, a boring waiting room with a TV in it, you know, like all the stuff you would expect to find in like a dentist's office or a doctor's office. And she said her business like really, really improved because people would come in and they felt like they understood it. The only difference was instead of, you know, walking out with a prescription, you would walk out with having had needles poked into you and a bag of herbs to make tea out of. But I can tell you that um, there are some really, really legit results that I've seen and that friends and family of mine have seen from acupuncture. And it's weird that we're in the West, like so quick to dismiss it as, you know, as something that's not real or something that couldn't possibly help you. But just because we don't understand it as lay people doesn't mean that it doesn't work. But then you go in and you're like, your diagnosis is, oh, you have too much liver chi. Like, well, that doesn't sound like a diagnosis. And like, they look at your tongue and they evaluate you based on your tongue and your pulse. If your pulse is too slippery, they're going to do something, you know, like, oh, your pul pulse, she's pulse slippery, pulse slippery. Like, okay, fix it. And then she would do something and I would feel better. And, you know, I'm, there were things that were, um, you know, you can, you could argue that it was psychosomatic or something like that. Like you were saying, you were kind of skeptical when you went in to do it, but I was very skeptical of it. I, I didn't think it would work. I went in saying, I'm about to go waste, you know, 50 bucks or whatever it was planning on wasting it, doing it to say, well, I, I, I guess I'll do this anyway. So to see it actually work, I was very surprised. I was very surprised, especially because I didn't like, I, I'm not going to say that I understand how, um, Prilosec works. I don't, I don't know what is really doing inside of you. So why is this that different? I don't know. I mean, it's a question I kind of have been meaning to ask you recently because, um, because I, I don't know if you've been following this, I assume you have, but there's been, and, and I talked to Merlin about this on Monday, uh, 
there's this huge overlap right now happening between the new age community and QAnon that the new age community and, and alternative medicine people and wellness people and, you know, alternative spirituality people are, uh, flocking in droves. And some of the big names in those communities are suddenly revealing themselves to be, uh, fully into the whole QAnon thing. Ah, right. Because there, you know, QAnon obviously is a catch-all for every kind of of conspiracy, and the wellness community had set itself up over the years, uh, according to these these totems of belief that, um, you know, just because there's no evidence for it doesn't mean it's not real. Mm-hmm. Um, these are, these are ancient things that, that you can't understand, um, you know, the kind of like gradual chipping away at what we would call like, well, it's, you know, the scientific method cannot demonstrate it, but once you've had it done, you know, you know, it's like anecdotal experiential evidence rather than demonstrable or repeatable or, you know, like, and I don't, I don't mean to take a side when it comes to, for instance, acupuncture, because acupuncture is 5,000 years old and is used in China as a, as a, as a component of regular medicine. Right. But, you know, burning witches is 5,000 years old too. (laughs) Um, so the fact that it's 5,000 years old isn't, doesn't matter. Uh, but, but you, you immediately, and the thing is, I'm very, I'm very open to the idea that there are, <laughs> that clearly there are things about the world we don't understand. There are levels of energy we don't. This is another metaphor that I use all the time, spooky action at a distance, right? There's just no, there's no accounting for things, even in physics, um, the Bader-Meinhof phenomenon. There are just so many, um, so many things that aren't explainable that are exciting, right? The fact that she put these needles into my hands and, and I, I don't even think that my back pain went away, but I definitely went on an astral trip for an hour. <laughs> oh, that's cool. Um, but as somebody who is a conspiracist, which you, um, you are to the degree that you've started a new podcast about conspiracy mm-hmm. and you're always, you know, you're always entertaining and examining and kind of exploring different conspiracies and you're, and you're very open to them and, and, you know, enjoy that universe. But QAnon is an example of, it's an umbrella conspiracy. There's no conspiracy that QAnon won't find a way to integrate into it self it's the borg of conspiracies right but it's also not only pure bananas without a scintilla of of grounding in the world but it's like a dangerous political movement like a quasi now now a dangerous quasi religion and 
it's an example of like, oh, well, I suppose you could believe in the Kennedy assassination, it being a thing, you know, like a vast conspiracy and definitely the, definitely in the fifties and sixties, the CIA did stage some coups and overthrow some lawful governments and replace them with autocrats, uh, by ginning up fake protests that started riots, you know? So yeah, that's not, that's not unheard of. And you know, the Jews do control the media. So, uh, so maybe Tom Hanks is snorting adrenochrome right now. And, um, and Donald Trump is here to save us all. So I don't know. I don't know where that slippery slope begins. And I don't, I'm not somebody who thinks that, it begins all the way up with an acceptance of acupuncture, but I don't know where it tips over. Is it the Kennedy assassination? Like what is the tipping point between, and is it, I guess every single conspiracy you have to evaluate the relative truth and, and then the craziness that gets around that truth that's a lot of work for people. Yeah, it is. It's too much for regular people. For me, my approach is very much as you describe it in that I, I you know, you try to you try to see how things fit together and how things are interconnected, but there's a big difference between is there does Bigfoot exist and you know, is there a cabal of Satan worshipping pedophiles that secretly run a global sex trafficking ring that only Donald Trump can stop. The, right. To me, the, those two those things... Very concisely put. Thank you. <laughs> uh, um, th- those are very different things to me, and I don't see them as related. But here's the thing. For people who do not normally think about things like paranormal, UFO, cryptozoology, conspiracy theories, for people who are out of that realm, out of that sphere completely, there's no indication that those things are not related. There's no indication that they're not connected. There's no indication that from the outside that there is a dividing line between those things. They blur together. They become blended together. Whereas for me, for example... Um, And because I've always been interested in all of this, you know, there's a huge difference between what we think of as traditional, let's, I'll pick a topic. Uh, Okay. There's a huge difference between alien abductions, which are purportedly conducted by the gray aliens. Yeah. Huge difference between that and the reptilian shape-shifting aliens that are supposedly connected to the Illuminati. To the point where there are many people who would say the shape-shifting reptilians, that's complete, complete crap. That's completely a lie. But like the gray aliens, that's the abduction. uh, That's real. Um, Whereas from the outside, someone would say, you either believe in aliens or you don't. Or what's the difference? There's, you know, so I think depending on the further down the closer to the to the metal you get on this, the the more differences you see. But I think to a lot of people, like to me, QAnon is completely not interesting to me. 
I've never, I've, I've looked into it so that I know what it is. I've tied conversations with people about it. I could not be less interested in that. I, I, um, it's just doesn't, it's just not interesting to me. I can't connect with anything about it. And it seems like, um, I don't know. It just, there's nothing, there's nothing there for me. And it also, it doesn't, it's not that it's not fantastical enough. Like I'm not out there looking for the weirdest possible thing. All of these things are intriguing to me, but what is interesting to me about the QAnon phenomenon is how many people are interested in it and do care about it and, uh, and, and do believe it and think that it's real and how widespread it is. Uh, it is, it, I, I don't know for sure, but my guess is if you were to count the number of people who believe in QAnon, if that's the right way to describe that, believe in it, compared to the number of people who believe in that Bigfoot exists, let's say, there's very few people who think Bigfoot's really real, who would really say, yeah, I, I really think there is a Bigfoot. I don't think there's a lot of people who believe in Bigfoot. I think there are a lot of people who believe in QAnon. As far as existence of alien intelligence, I, I think it's a foregone conclusion that there is alien intelligence in the universe. That's not the discussion or the debate. The debate is, are they here? And what are they doing if they are here? I think that's where you lose a lot of people. I don't think there's many people except people who are fairly religious and believe in an earth-centric, human-centric view of the universe. Other than those people, if you exclude those people, I think most people would say, I'm sure there's other intelligent life in the universe because we've already found ex life. And uh, we're talking about bacterial and, and that kind of life, but we've found life elsewhere already in our own stupid solar system. If the universe is limitless, of course there's other life out there. So that's not the question anymore. The question is, is it, is it here and what's it doing? And that's where you lose, I think, a lot of people. But the QAnon thing, it's just, um, there's a lot that you have to believe that seems to go against what you can actually observe. And this is also what makes QAnon different. And for me, takes it out for the most part of um, a lot of what people think of as conspiracy theory type things because there you can observe most of it, most of it, not all of it. I mean, you can't observe what George Soros does in the privacy of his own home, but you can observe a lot of the other things that are going on. And, you know, for me, it all comes down to proof. Like, do I believe that aliens are are here, for example, and are abducting people. Well, why don't we have any proof of that, John? We don't, you know, we don't have the equivalent. And I was just talking to a friend of mine earlier this week. We don't have the equivalent of an alien paperclip. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. out of all of the abductions that supposedly have happened and all of the people who have been abducted over decades... Because technically, they, the, the, the alien abduction phenomenon that we think of when we think of alien abductions really started in the 1940s. Um, is that because that's when the aliens showed up? Is it that's when people started 
I don't know, who knows, but that seems to be when it kind of ramped up. That doesn't take away from the fact that there, you know, you've seen ancient civilizations where they have aliens and ships and other things. Perhaps those are different aliens or they were here at a different time. But see, none of these things, there's no real proof of it. There's no good footage. There's no um, paperclip. In other words, there's no artifact that we can look at that we can say, this is clearly a manufactured thing and the technology used to manufacture it doesn't exist on Earth. And the resulting thing that was manufactured isn't something we could make. You know, mm -hmm, we mm -hmm. don't have a single thing like that. Now, it's probably because aliens don't leave paper clips laying out that we can grab. But, you know, you think about that scene in Silence of the Lambs where Hannibal, was it a pen that he got that allowed him to, I don't want to ruin the movie, but allowed him to do what he did in the last part of the movie, you know, where he got just a little paper clip or a little pen or something and was able to slide it off the table and get it like no one's been able to do that. And is it because their mind control is so absolute when we're <laughs> on their ship that, that no one can do that? Because there are lots of reports of people who say that they are acting more or less independently, uh, even though they're in the confines of the ship or whatever. But nothing ever gets brought back. Nothing. Ever. Not once. And so does that make me skeptical? Hell yeah, it makes me skeptical of it. Grab a paperclip, right? If you yeah. get abducted, just grab one paperclip. One. Or, or whatever the equivalent of that is. One device. One thing. And come back with it. You're going to say, well, the aliens have protocols that prevent that. Okay. I believe that. I believe that. But not one. Not once. Not one single piece of physical proof that... that can be looked at in a lab by serious scientists and said, so that does that cast some doubt? Yeah. I mean, I want to know more about it, but it doesn't, it doesn't make me disbelieve it. It makes me say, I want that proof so that I can believe it. I want that proof so that I can go along with it. You know, it's, it's the same things with ghosts, um, of all of these sort of supernatural, paranormal, unexplained phenomenon the biggest one for me should be phenomena, shouldn't it? Um, is I know I can't I can't not think of that. But you know what what it comes down to for me is like I I have a really hard time believing in ghosts. Of all the things that I believe in, I almost think I could go along with believing in QAnon theories before ghosts because. I'm not saying I haven't gotten creeped out before. We talked a long time ago when we were talking about conspiracy theories. You told me about there was like some graveyard that you walked, you used to walk by or had walked by. And that's, those are creepy places. And I'm not, I'm not sure what's going on there, but like ghosts are something I just can't, I just, I don't know. But the QAnon thing is, is kind of weird because so many people believe it and they believe it very, very publicly. We have seen in our lifetime, John, people who believe in aliens and who would publicly say, yes, I believe there are aliens. I believe there might be here on Earth. I, I, I believe there might be here. But very, very few people are going to hear me say that and say, well, I'm done listening to Dan's stuff now. Don't want to hear from him anymore. I don't think a lot of people would say that. I might say, ah, he's, he's, yeah, I don't believe that, but he's cool. You know, like that's not saying, but 30 years ago, if I just said, yeah, I think they're probably aliens visiting Earth, people would say, oh, he's, he's, he's crazy. But if I were to say, oh, I think QAnon is totally, totally legit, totally real, and, and, and you've got to believe me, 
there are a lot of people who would say, oh, I can't listen to Dan anymore. <laughs> um, but there are a lot of people who would say, yes, good, finally. Um, and that's weird. Why, why, in all of the conspiracy theories, what is it exactly about QAnon that makes you so disinterested in it? I mean, it seems like it's just natural. You don't, you, you, you look at it, you read it down and you're just like, not uh, nothing here for me. Yeah, that's right. Um, because, you know, because it seems to me and you know, maybe I'm missing the boat on this, but it just seems so preposterous to me. Like, okay, let's, let's say, let's just look at Bigfoot, Bigfoot. Is it possible, is it possible that out, out in your backyard somewhere in Seattle and Washington state, Pacific Northwest, that there is or was some kind of forest dwelling primate creature that somehow lived out there. Yes. I, that's totally reasonable to me to think that is it, is it there? There have been sightings of it. They found fur. They, that usually turns out to be deer or bear fur or something, but that, you know, is it possible that something like that could exist? Well, how should I know if it's possible or not? There's a lot. And especially 50 years ago when Bigfoot was like, like from the 30 to 50 years ago, Bigfoot was like the number one thing that people talked about right. in, in this, in this space. Well, is, the skunk ape too. Let's the be, skunk let's, ape, yes, yes, you know. and chupacabra. Is it possible, Jersey Devil, that something did exist or maybe even still exists that we don't know about? Yes, that's possible to me. Is it possible that Loch Ness was some kind of like plesiosaur type dinosaur or something? Is it possible that it could have existed in that lake? Is it possible? Yes, it is possible. Is it likely? No. Is it likely that a dinosaur or enough dinosaurs adapted and lived in that lake and reproduced long enough. Nah, it doesn't. But is it possible? It's a big lake, John. Yeah, it's a, a deep lake. lake and it's a murky lake. Is it possible that there's a creature in there that we don't? Yes, of course it's possible. Of course it's possible. Is it possible that there is a cabal of Satan worshiping pedophiles that are running a global sex trafficking ring and that Donald Trump is the only one who can stop it. I mean, yes. Okay. No. You know, um, it just, no. but, but when, if I were just to say, okay, but let's break that down. Is it possible that there's a cabal of Satan worshiping pedophiles? I, I'm going to say, yes, absolutely. That's possible. Is the, are they, do they exist? Yes. Is there probably some kind of global child sex trafficking ring? I think, yes. I, I think, yes, there is. Demonstrable. Um, are there both of those together? Maybe not. Is Donald Trump the only one who can stop it? No. And then when you start to get into all of the, the, the stuff where they're saying that like uh, Barack Obama is part of this and Hillary Clinton is part of it. And when you start to go into that kind of detail and you start to talk about that, then it, it starts to become more and more preposterous when I hear it. I just say there's too many, there are too many things that you have to believe for it to be true. Right. I get that. And yeah. that's the problem for me. It's like, 
Is, is the universe basically limitless and vast? Yes. Could life, could, could there be another earth-like planet somewhere that could sustain life in the vastness of the universe? Yeah. Is it possible that they got a head start on us by a few hundred thousand years? Oh, definitely. Earth and the sun is a young star. So then is it possible that they could have developed a way to travel across the universe that we haven't figured out yet? Yeah. And none of this to me is like, well, I've really got to suspend my disbelief on that one. No, all of this makes sense because look, we've got microwave ovens, John. My, yes, we do, Dan. You know, and you can heat a baked potato in a microwave oven in 10 or 15 minutes. You don't have to wait an hour to do it anymore. You can have nope. a baked potato on demand. If I told my grandparents or anyone before them when they were my age that we would have this, they would say, that's a magic. That's amazing. It's impo- There's a box and you push a button on the box and food just pops out of it hot. You, you, no way. But that's technology, right? The old saying, it appears like magic. So who's to say that in a thousand years, just a mere thousand years, what technology we'll have that we can't even imagine now, you know, we don't have any idea what is in store for us or what single breakthrough will completely change everything. For example, if we had what's called zero point energy or unlimited energy, essentially, that your entire house could be powered for lifetimes by a tiny little box, tiny little box, the size of a you know box of matches. If I said you could have that and that will power everything in your house, including charging your electric vehicle and everything forever, wouldn't that dramatically change many, many things about how we as people live on this planet? Yes. So... So what, what if I threw in yeah. this slicer dicer? Yes. Would that sweeten the pot for you? Yeah. And that's the thing is like, we don't know what's the future, uh, uh, what the future of technology will bring. So it's very possible that a civilization manages to not destroy itself and figure out how to travel pretty fast through the universe. So could aliens be here? Yeah. I don't have to believe a lot to believe that. I can just look at what we've done in the last 10, 15, 20 years and think, who knows what the future has for us. But in order to believe in the QAnon thing, you also have to, and this is the one thing that I've always had trouble believing when it comes to something like the Illuminati, is people who are the same age, the same demographic, can't work together very well on a team. You can't take five people and think that they're going to get along. Regular people who all want the same thing, who all work in the same company on the same team, there's going to be infighting. It's just those five people. You can't get five people to really get along for on their own. Why would a group of incredibly powerful, influential, super rich people be able to get along together to have these global initiatives uh, and not fight each other for power and not want to rule and destroy the other people. The more powerful you become, the more you want to destroy the other people that are powerful. I just don't think that any of that stuff makes sense. There goes my phone. I don't oh, know. You, 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 uh, that, that's the thing. Your phone just just tried to commit suicide. I did. It jumped right out of my you, uh, lap onto the you, ground. You were going against its its master. That's right. The, uh, the global cabal. It didn't like that. It didn't like no. that. I don't know, you know, the, but the QAnon thing, it just, it doesn't, it doesn't grab me. And it's not that I'm disinterested in politics. I, I, I find politics to be quite interesting. 
Um, but it just, there's so many things that I would have to believe that, that don't stack up correctly with each other that I just can't get on board. I can't get on board. Um, well, I guess my question, my question is that, uh, and I, I feel like I've seen this over the course of my life and it's one of my methodologies, I guess, which is, you know, when looking at a problem, when looking at a question, you know, it, it serves to, to extrapolate from that question to its like most extreme example and see how, uh, the proposition holds up when pushed to its extreme, right? As you just did. Mm -hmm. Uh, but it's something that you can kind of apply to almost any political argument. It's not to say that if it doesn't hold up at its extreme, that, that, that automatically refutes the idea. It's just a, um, it's just a way of finding out like, is there some like systemic flaw to this idea that can be revealed just by extrapolating out to a slightly more extreme condition. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's the, you know, that's that, that right away destroys a lot of political arguments. As soon as you put pressure on it by saying, okay, would that apply in a society where but, uh, this new thing was true? Or would that apply if we just, you know, if, if we applied that to a larger group than just, than, than w just what you're describing. Here. Right. Um, and so that kind of stress testing of ideas is, I think really, um, it's a, it's a primary way that, that I interact with ideas. Um, it, it, would this be true at a personal level? Would this be true at a global level? Um, just to see where the boundaries of an idea lie. And that's, that happens in physics a lot, right? You, you take a, a tenant and you subject it to the stress of trying to apply it, uh, you know, across scale. And if it is true at the molecular level, shouldn't it be true at the interstellar level? And depending on where you, where you find the frisian, you either, you either sand down your idea or you, or you adjust it. Yeah. And, and that adjustment has to be, um, again, has to be sort of subjected to a question of scale or right. whatnot. This episode of Roadwork is brought to you by Holus Bolus Winery. That's right. You can learn more about the Holus Bolus Winery by visiting the joyfantastic.com. But let me tell you about them. They make independent wine for independent people. They don't have any investors. They are not some gigantic factory operation. The Holus Bolus Octopus on their label... It's just the four arms and four legs of Amy and Peter, a husband and wife team who love wine. They know wine and they want everyone's wine to be delicious. It's made by actual human beings, not the product of spreadsheets or corporate meetings. And when they say that this wine is made by people, it really is just Peter and Amy farming five acres of their vineyard, which they have named the Joy Fantastic. It really is from their farm to your table. Everything Holus Bolus has done has been built over time, just the two of them. They've reinvested any of the profits they've made over the years back into the winery until they could finally plant their own vineyard back in 2014. And you can be assured that they know their stuff. Amy is a master of wine, and that's just not a title I made up for her. There are 409 masters of wines on the planet. Only 52 of them are in the United States, and of those, only 18 are women. 
and Amy is one of those very few people. Holus Bolus uses high-quality grapes from cool climates. They're certified organic by the CCOF, whatever that is. Every grape in every bottle is grown in Santa Rita Hills in Santa Maria Valley, California. So whether you go with the Pinot Noir or the Chardonnay or the Syrah, it's all great stuff. They basically have two labels. One is named after their vineyard, the Joy Fantastic, and the other is named after the winery, Holus Bolus. And all Holus Bolus wines are naturally made using uh, native yeasts. They are vegan. No animal products are used, period. And they use uh, low levels of sulfur to bottle them, too. And that's, that's important. Um, I have received several bottles of these wines. And I have tried them. And today, with our uh, Thanksgiving Day meal, we are having the Chardonnay all of their wines are really delicious, and you can learn more about them by going to thejoyfantastic.com. Order something for yourself. Order something for a loved one, and uh, they have these really great three-packs that you can get for uh, either label. You can get their cool Holus Bolus t-shirt that they have, and wine club members, if you decide to join, get 15% off every order. But Amy and Peter are giving our listeners the same discount through the end of December, December 31st, 2020. So all you have to do is visit thejoyfantastic.com, use the offer code ROADWORK15, and you'll get that 15% off your order. So again, that's ROADWORK15, just like it sounds, uh, with the numbers 1-5. Go do yourself a favor and have some awesome wine. Life is too short to not enjoy some good wine with a good meal. So thanks very much to Holus Bolus for supporting Roadwork. We really appreciate it. And I guess my question with the argument that there are forces at work that we cannot see, right? The argument that um, that although uh, although science cannot describe or replicate acupuncture um, because science does not have a way of saying that your chakra is blocked and needs to have its energy released mm -hmm. by putting <laughs> a needle into the hub of your whatever like science doesn't recognize any of those terms and i'm i'm very susceptible to someone saying well science doesn't understand everything and this is a practice that's been refined over thousands of years all these terms chakra and whatever are descriptive of a thing that was discovered by experimentation and so you know, get, get the chakra thing out of your head, you know, get the, get the association you have with that being, uh, you know, poorly described by an undergraduate in your freshman dorm, like block all that out and just appre appreciate it as a thing that through centuries of experimentation, this has been discovered. It's not the same as, as chemistry. It's a different a whole different vernacular. Like right. I, 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 I'm there for that. Right. But if you stress test that set of, um, that, that set of conditionals, right. If you say, well, 
all right, then if, if I'm going to adopt all that conditionality and say like, well, it doesn't, but that doesn't mean that it's not. And if I, and this, you know, but also that's not, blah, blah, blah. you know, if you, if you, if you take all of those and say like, all right, is that a methodology? Can I apply that to other things? Let's ramp that up and see if that applies across the board or if it applies to these other things, you very quickly get into a, a situation where if you use that same logic, John F. Kennedy Jr. is still alive and he's living on top of the Washington Monument <laughs> and, you know, and, um, and he's about to, he's about to reveal that he's Taylor Swift's father. Right. And, and the thing is, I don't have the patience or the luxury to know exactly where, where a suspension of disbelief is useful and good and true and honest where that crosses over to a suspension of disbelief is culpable and, and, you know, and naive and crackpot and dangerous. Uh, and I, I also, you know, I don't have a, a ton of respect for people that live completely evidence-based lives in the sense that, I mean, I respect them as authorities to consult, right? But I don't like to be lectured by them because I absolutely want to maintain my own fantasies about um, the, the natural world. Like, I, w I want my imagination to be active. I want to think that that owl that appeared uh, on the wire above my truck the other day while I was waiting for the engine to warm up, I want to believe that that owl is trying to communicate with me. It's not that I want to believe it. I just believe it. Right. And whether or not, you know, and somebody saying like that owl just came there because it saw a mouse or whatever. Like I, I, I don't need them tromping around my imagination, but also my belief in that owl is not governing my policy decisions, right? Like I don't go to the store and make my grocery shopping decisions based on what I think that owl intended. And I, so that's the, that's the part that I think now more than ever, I don't know how to govern the gray space between, uh, between like using a methodology to accept the veracity of something and, and having enough wiggle room that you feel like you're living in a world that still has magic. Mm hmm but not allowing enough wiggle room for that magic to become sorcery. And, you know, I know that you trade in this space um, just kind of as part of your own amused and investigative personality. But I'm seeing it more and more that something like QAnon that's just, just crazy pants and the popularity of it uh, amongst people uh, kind of of all political stripes, that's what's crazy, to bring all these hippies in and to find and to watch the hippies be like, oh, this is this comports perfectly with my sense that, 
you know, I've been sleeping under a copper pyramid for <laughs> two decades. And well, because the, I'll tell you why, John, I'll tell you why. Okay. Because a lot of the stuff that goes on inside QAnon, for example, is, are, are, are things that other people believe or that resonate with them. And so that's part of, I think, the draw of it. So for example, uh, one of the things that QAnon people often say is that the media is not being honest, that the media, big media, is lying to us. Mm-hmm. Now, I do believe that. Um, that does not mean that I believe all media is lying. It doesn't mean that I believe that every network is is lying. It, it means that there is misinformation <coughs> often in, in what we're told in the media, that could be in the form of incomplete information. It could be misreported information. It could be um, misquotes. There's a lot of things that it, it could be oversimplifying or oversummarizing information. Is this done on purpose to mislead us? That's the question. I think a lot of the time, no. I mean, anything, anytime I've ever been interviewed, and I and we talked about this. We talked about this not maybe two weeks ago. You're talking about an interview that you did. Maybe it was last week. Um, you were misquoted or taken out of context. That any interview I've ever had, and I haven't even had that many. I'm always, it's always been misquoted and taken out of context every single solitary time, every time, even on stuff that could have been just quoted directly and would have sounded better than the way that they changed it. So of course, if that happens to little me, it's definitely happening elsewhere. So I can go along with the fact that there is intentional or unintentional misinformation or disinformation in the media. So if you believe that a little bit, then you find that there's like a movement of people that are saying, yeah, like there's like, it's even worse than you think you're more likely to believe it. Here's my, here's, here's a story I'll relay that I'm I'm sure I've told before, but that's good. A friend of mine was Jehovah's witness and we worked together in, um, at a, like a technology company and his office was a door down from mine and he was similar age and we were the two younger guys in this, on this floor of pretty much stuffy accounting type people. And we, um, you know, we would talk and I was fascinated, absolutely fascinated by his religion, Jehovah's witness. I thought it was just really interesting. And we would talk about it all the time. Now, of course he knew that I was raised Jewish and I asked him at one point after we'd known each other for a while, I said, how come you've never tried to like, convert me. And he's like, Oh, cause it's pointless. I said, why was it pointless? And he's like, well, because you're Jewish. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, well, all Jehovah's witnesses were all, we know, like, we know that you can't convert Jews. You can't get them interested. I said, why is that? I said, you're right, but why? <laughs> and he said, because you guys don't fear hell and you, um, you don't believe in Christianity and therefore you don't have the kind of fear triggers that I guess Jehovah's Witnesses might use to reach somebody that were essentially unreachable. And he's like, when we're going door to door, he's like, if there's a mezuzah on the door, we don't even bother to go. We won't even yeah. bother. Um, and I, I found that to be very interesting. And it's true. 
but it, it's like there isn't that commonality of belief. There isn't that that common system, the infrastructure of religion, if you will, that was strong enough for him to get his uh, hooks in to maybe get the person interested. But there are enough things QAnon draws from enough different spaces and different places that it provides many, many, many inroads for different people to get interested in it. And once they're a little bit interested in it and that, and, and part A makes sense, you said, well, if part A makes sense, maybe part B is true. Well, part A and B were true. C is, might be true. And A, B and C were true. Then you know what? I'm in for the rest of it. I'm in for D through Z, all of it. And that's kind of what happens is those dominoes fall and people wind up buying it. But if you don't believe in any, any of those primary inroads, then I feel like you're, you'll never be, you'll never be able to get into it much more. But well, my, that, I, that's my, that's my question, I guess, is that there are so many gateways to, um, to believe that the world is not what it seems. Yeah. And for instance, like to believe that there are things inaccurately portrayed in the media is easy. Yes. Cause there's plenty of evidence. Right. To believe that the media lies sounds like it's just a tiny little step. I mean, we already said it, right? There are inaccurate things in the media, therefore the media lies. But that's actually a huge jump. Right, right. And as soon as you say the media lies, I mean, the mind can race with that. And so what, I guess what you have is, you know, you have a you have like a little Hot Wheels track and to say there are inaccurate things in the media, it's one of those sections of Hot Wheels track that's only basically about as long as the car. Uh, you put the car on it and the car rolls, you know, one rotation of the wheels to the other end. There are inaccuracies in the media. That's demonstrable. Mm -hmm. But then to say the media lies is a whole section of Hot Wheels track, right, from the starting point, which is there are inaccuracies in the media all the way to – the entire news media is a giant, like, uh, hydra controlled from a central location, pumping out like things that are, um, lies that are meant to serve a, the, the purpose of brainwashing people. Right. And create in the service of, uh, like, um, like a cabal of, uh, of people that are, that are, manipulating the world right mm -hmm. and and all of that is contained that huge hot wheels track is all contained in this three word sentence the media lies right and and so then you put that building block in there click and then on the other side of it you can say well if we if we know the media lies then we can say that you cannot trust the media and you click and that's a hot, hot wheels track that's that's 50 feet long, you know, and now all of a sudden you've got people that are like, well, the, you know, the media said that the sky is blue or the media tells us that, uh, that George Washington chopped down the cherry tree or the media tells us that coronavirus is a problem or whatever. And it's all a lie. Right. Um, 
And so my question is, I guess, and this is a question I'm asking myself personally, I find that the fact that QAnon has clicked with so many people that have, that have pre-clicked into place some of these really simple phrases that, that can contain multitudes, you know, right, to say like, right. is there global, uh, child sex trafficking? Yes. Right. You, it, you don't even have to know to know right. that there are people around the world who are uh, kidnapping children and using them for, to, for ill purpose. And if there are those people, then they're trading with each other, you know, the, then it's an industry because there are industries. I mean, there are whole industries of people that are, that just get together to, to have dogs fight each other or true. chickens. Very true. You know, and if you're, if you, if you have a whole sports industry, that's just devoted to, to tying razor blades to chickens, um, you know, anything's possible. And that's an, that's an ancient and very, and very popular sport. Well, and so is the abuse of children. But to follow the logic out, all of a sudden, after decades of feeling like, you know what, there's so much in the world that you don't understand. There's, you know, acupuncture and, um, you know, fasting and hardened fecal matter and uh, the sound of, bowls that have a, that you're rubbing a, a wood stick on and the Kennedy assassination. Like I have, I've all of a sudden contracted my willingness to say, Oh yeah, probably because I've, because I feel all around me now the pressure of Realizing that to say, eh, yeah, probably is a sort of, it's a tacit endorsement of a way of thinking. And that way of thinking can be, um, and, and I guess in a lot of cases where I assumed it was benign can be so quickly converted and perverted in people that you would think were intelligent and otherwise, you know, like I, I don't have a, I don't have a ton of respect for the universe of yoga instructors, but I at least felt like they were allies. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Like I don't, I don't, I don't go to yoga instructors for enlightenment, but I assumed that they were working toward enlightenment all, along a, along a, uh, like a path, right. a neighboring path <laughs> and not, so vulnerable to suddenly believing in adrenochrome. And so now I feel like when confronted with something, when last night talking to my daughter about acupuncture, I found myself saying something I wouldn't have done. I think, I, I think three years ago I would have said to her, there are worlds of, of nature and experience that we don't understand and can't, qualify, um, that yet are, uh, supported by anecdotal evidence, supported by, uh, millennia of experience, firsthand experience. And there, there are other cultures that have completely other 
approaches to things like health and wellness. And we have a tendency to be chauvinistic about it. And it's wise to be open to these different experiences. So here's what acupuncture is. And here's, um, here's how, you know, I understand it and how one might integrate it into a life, a life living in, in Seattle. And now I'm a lot more circumspect just last night in describing it to her. Cause I did say all those things, but there was, but I played it much closer to the vest and said, you know, and kind of prefaced it by saying some believe, which is a thing maybe four years ago, I wouldn't have said some believe that X, Y, Z, I would have four years ago said, you know, in general, you cannot apply, you cannot apply a, a science as a, as a blanket ideology because it doesn't cover everything. And now I'm, I'm walking that back a little bit just because you have to draw the line somewhere. <laughs> yeah, you do. And, and I don't know where to draw the line. Because if I say, if I say, well, acupuncture is real. And the thing is, I know that acupuncture is not waiting out there for my endorsement. But in terms of like my, the way I live my life, the way I teach my child, then, you know, that's just like saying there are inaccuracies in the media. It's true, right? Acupuncture is real. But it opens the door to... That means chakras are real. Right. It's like, okay, well, if chakras are real, then your heart chakra can be clogged. Sure. By, uh, you know, by bummers. (laughs) Okay. But also, also, also let me add to what you're saying for a second by saying there's also the, so what factor. So let's say, Let's say your heart chakra can be clogged. I'm not saying, so what if it's clogged? You get to unclog it, right? But so what if chakras are real? Like, how does that, does that cause you to reevaluate your reality? Not for most people, I would think. It says, oh, there's this, there's maybe an energy in the human body that we don't necessarily understand with science, but does that mean it couldn't exist or it doesn't exist or that you can't clear your chakras and feel better about your day? Like, yeah. Okay. Cool. Like there is that, that's almost the, so what factor it doesn't require you to fundamentally change your perception of reality. Um, does the existence of Bigfoot in the Pacific Northwest cause you to fundamentally change your reality? Basically what we're saying is there's some kind of ape that we don't know about. Does that cause you to completely reevaluate your reality? I would say no, not for most people. Does the existence of a giant plesiosaur in a lake well, I would say if you don't believe in the dinosaurs were real, perhaps because of a religious uh, upbringing or something, then yes, it would. But for the majority of people who believe in dinosaurs, would that rec- or maybe it's not a dinosaur. Maybe it's just a large aquatic animal that we don't understand. Is it possible that there's a large aquatic animal in a lake somewhere? Do you have to reevaluate everything you believe for that to be true? No. So that's kind of, that's well, the but difference. Except- 
except that if you are about to set the um the speed record for power boats yeah. across Loch Ness, <laughs> yeah. it does, right? And with the hot with the heart chakra business, it's a if heart chakras are real, does that exclude appendicitis from the list of reasons why your uh why you might be feeling clogged for most people. No, even for most new age people, uh, a clogged heart chakra is going to manifest itself in certain ways. But by the time you fall to the ground in agony, uh, it's going to be the rare, I think new age practitioner. That's like, no, 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 you don't need to go to the hospital. It's just your heart chakra. Although we've seen in life, Christian scientists and Jehovah's witnesses and all kinds of people who will sit, sit Shiva next to the, their children's bed while the child dies, mm-hmm. unwilling to seek medical attention because yeah, yeah. of a belief. And that's increasingly, I think, true in new age medicine. Um, and anti-vax being like one of the primary manifestations of that in the news, at least recently. But if you're living a life where you say, my heart chakras may be real and also appendicitis may be real, like all you've already entered into a world of false equivalency, mm-hmm. right? So, so this, you know, to say like appendicitis is real and the treatment for appendicitis is an appendectomy or a, 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 the treatment for a burst appendix is appendectomy. Mm-hmm. Does that coexist with acupuncture? Particularly if, you know, there's a whole school of acupuncture that's like, well, you know, in the old days when there weren't appendectomies, we treated it with acupuncture. And that's not, the, the, I mean, Western medicine is full of those too. Right. But I'm trying to, I'm trying to pick a path that allows me to retain magic in the world, but not just live according to science, but also now I think not tacitly endorse things that are bananas. Mm. And I feel like that, I feel like that tendency to be like, yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure that, I'm sure that, uh, you know, that Reiki massage right where you hold your hands over someone and and create a a ball of lightning with your energy sure i bet that that's <laughs> you know i bet you know at, that that even the tacit endorsement of just sort of not going no um at least in in my um in a world that's only one kiss away from me there are people who have used that, who who have, in the course of a life of embracing Reiki treatment, now also believe that by extension, because if Reiki is real, then the media and medicine are not. Right. And therefore there's a global child sex trafficking ring that only Donald Trump can stop. Right. right. And uh, 
so I guess, you know, I guess I'm trying to figure out like if you're going to, if you're going to knock a domino over in your system of belief, in the system of belief I'm teaching my child, at what point as those dominoes go out, do I race ahead and start pulling dominoes from those branches where, where, you know, the if then statement is, well, if you believe in chiropractic, then you have to believe in Reiki. And it's like, let me get ahead of there and pull some dominoes out of that so that, so that it does not set off a chain reaction over here. You know, let's leave these dominoes standing. Right. Right. And where, at what juncture, at what, at what branch do I jump in there? Cause I know people listening to the show that live science-based lives that wouldn't even, that wouldn't even set any dominoes going over in the, there's magic in the world mm-hmm. side, you know, they just wouldn't even start that game. And, you know, most of them aren't poets. <laughs> yeah. And as a poet, like I have an <laughs> obligation to keep some magic alive in me. 